From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hey, I'm Cassie J. Snyder, and I'm the author of the book Fine, Fine Music. I host a reading series in Brooklyn and San Francisco called The Worst, which is writers, musicians, and other weirdos of note telling stories about their worst roommates, dates, job interviews, and all sorts of other awful yet hilarious things. So what I'm reading today is an excerpt from Fine Fine Music, and it's a story called Sugar Sugar. Here goes. A quick inspection of my parents' attic will reveal the psychological differences between my sister and me. One need only open up a large Tupperware bin to find my collection of My Little Ponies in immaculate condition, spit shined by their obsessive-compulsive owner 20 years ago. Their hair has not been combed into a balding clog of synthetic yellow knots like the ponies in the bin next to it, the one covered in peeling stickers with Carly written a hundred times on the outside in crayon. My pony's hair was conditioned in the bathroom sink while I hummed Elton John songs to myself. I spoke to them, I petted them, and I still believe that this love would spur them to come to my rescue if I ever needed them. Ponies! Help! I say as a flash flood rips through my childhood home. Quickly! neighs Buttercup, who bites down gently on the mane of sunshine clover, forming a life bridge of childhood wishes to save me from instant death. I'm drowning! Carly screams, frantically clawing and trying to grab hold of anything floating by. Screw you! says Starshine, who's partially melted to skippity-doo and mummified in peanut butter. Early on, Carly displayed a devil-may-care attitude toward taking care of toys, completing science projects, and brushing her hair. Despite our many differences, Carly and I banded together every Halloween. I didn't have any other friends to go trick-or-treating with, and I think my mother was under the assumption that I would be able to defend the two of us against teenagers with shaving cream. We didn't have much money, so when Halloween rolled around, our mom usually brought us to Woolworths to scrounge for deals like raccoons tipping over a trash can. Carly was a happy-go-lucky eight-year-old and didn't mind when the only choice she was presented with was witch or ghost. I, on the other hand, was ten, and therefore old enough to feel weirded out that the only costume left in my size was a sexy wizard outfit. But I don't want to be a wizard, I said, looking at the valley of implanted cleavage on the package. The wizard model had a classic early 90s features that suggested a potential career in Cinemax softcore. Rigid, oversized breasts, bleached hair, and wet and wild lip liner in bus stop skank brown. Tough, it's the day before Halloween, my mother said, filling out the check and handing it to the cashier. But it's October. I'm going to be cold. The lady on the package was wearing fishnets, and I was sure they would do little to insulate against the fall chill. We have pants underneath it. Let's go, she said, digging the keys out of her pocketbook. The next day, when I was wearing white stretch pants and a turtleneck under my sexy wizard costume, I felt cheated. I understood that I was only in the fourth grade, but I had hoped that when I put on the pointy blue LeMay hat, a transformation would take place. Maybe I could use the wand it came with to amaze the neighbors by beaming candy into my bag, or to deflect the psychotic teenagers in my neighborhood when they inevitably tried to egg us. You don't look like the box, Carly said, waving around her arms in an attempt to haunt the bathroom where I stood looking in the mirror. I stared at my reflection, seeing my Tom McCann sneakers and the sweater bunching out of the plunging neckline. 
I stared and I squinted, and finally I let it sink in that despite my best efforts, I was a total gaylord. Girls, get downstairs. Your cousins are here. Lisa and Wendy were even poorer than we were. This was evident by the witch hats they were both sporting in addition to jack-o'-lantern boxers on the outside of their clothes. My cousin Jamie was dressed as a devil. This was fitting because Jamie's room was a hell on earth for toys. When the neck on my favorite Barbie snapped, we went to my aunt's house to dig through the headless, undressed graveyard in Jamie's closet. Here, take this one, Jamie had said, ripping the head off of the ice capades Barbie with a remorseless pop. We gathered in the dining room, a ragtag band of discount spooks and bargain frightmares. When my mother handed out sacks for our loot, I begged for the pillowcase from my father's bachelor days, with a pair of enormous breasts silk-screened on it. I was rebuked with a stern glare. Instead, I got an orange and brown one from the back of the closet that smelled like dust mites and Watergate. Have fun, said my aunt. We used to put pennies in socks and swing them around, my mother said, and she pushed us out the door. Halloween, 1993. The teenagers in the neighborhood are fueled by nad-pumping grunge music and headbangers ball. They walk around without costumes, their hair sprayed green and pink, or if their parents don't care about them, it is dyed in fading shades of Kool-Aid. They roll in groups of anywhere from 2 to 12, spraying parked cars with silly string, egging the houses that turn off their lights and pretend not to be home. Nothing is sacred. I'm walking with my cousins. I'm aware of the crunching of leaves under my feet, of the cold stinging everywhere the turtleneck and sexy wizard costume do not conceal. Carly's making ghost noises. Jamie and Wendy are swinging pillowcases at each other. And Lisa is talking about someone in her homeroom named Jared, who she's interested in marrying. She's decided that the bridesmaid colors will either be burgundy or hunter green, and their firstborn child will probably be a girl. We're walking together, but it feels like a solo mission. I've left the relative safety of my home to collect as much candy as possible. Once I return home, my objective will then switch to protecting the good candy for my parents, who are shameless scavengers and will claim all the almond joys have poison in them. We walk for blocks. Old people meet us at their gates and cast pennies into our sacks. Pennies mean they do not ever leave the house. They smile at our costumes as if they have never seen a devil or a witch or a ghost before. No one seems to notice my ill-fitting sexy wizard. I accept their pennies, which are worthless, and say nothing. Our neighborhood does not have sidewalks, and we trudge on through piles of wet leaves. The bottom of Carly's ghost costume begins to brown, and I have somehow gotten a smear of mud on my sexy wizardry, making it seem as though I've had a magic spell of incontinence. Minivans fly past us, piloted by parents who understand that trick-or-treating is a game of speed as well as deaf politeness. If they are careful, their children will have candy to hold them over until Easter. Trick-or-treating by foot is difficult, but it is boot camp preparation for real life, for situations such as walking to work after a succession of failed DMV tests or running to class after the car stalls in the university parking lot. I will not have candy until spring, but I will be a better person in the springtime of my life. We approached a rundown house with no decorations and knocked on the door. After a few minutes of patient waiting, an old man came to the door with a basket of Mary Janes and Biddo honeys, which are the equivalent of pennies for the elderly who are still mobile. Oh, he said, in the delighted way old people do when they're genuinely glad to answer the door to something other than a reaper holding a scythe with their name on it. 
Lisa, Wendy, and I lined up, and he dropped a few orange and black nuggets into our sacks. The old man stepped back and took a long look at Carly and Jamie. Carly said, waving her white polyester fringe arms and holding open her pillowcase in anticipation. Used to was here already, the old man proclaimed and slammed the door shut in their smiling faces. We stood in the yard outside of his house, dumbfounded by the coldness of his denial. The fact was that we had not been to his house at all that day. He clearly had a basket of crappy candy for the taking, and most adults, even if they felt they were being swindled, would begrudgingly accept the loss in the name of goodwill. What a dick, Jamie said. She was a year older than me and was allowed to say words like dick and hell. We ought to tell Ma, Carly said, eyes welling up with tears. She was only eight but could still recognize that her mother was mildly psychotic and might be willing to kill that old man if she knew we'd been smited. We could put poop in a bag and leave it on his doorstep, I suggested, vengeful even as a fourth grader. It was getting dark. We made the walk back to our house, thinking of the millions of ways we could torment our 80-year-old neighbor. Most of the ideas we came up with involved eggs, shaving cream, or the harvesting of dog poop. In the end, we did nothing. But if you ask Carly or Jamie about that old man today, they will respond with an anger so venomous that one would think the incident had happened yesterday. Our cousins went home, and Carly and I began the intense negotiations of trading candy. I arranged mine into piles of universally recognized value based on sugar content and rarity. Carly dumped hers in a pile on the floor and took anything in danger of being eaten by our parents upstairs to bury in the hollow spot she had made in the box spring of our bunk beds. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night to hear her sucking on a jawbreaker, wrapping it in plastic, and putting it back in the hole in the bed. It is truly a medical miracle that Carly escaped childhood without incident of worms. Although her methods were unconventional, Carly knew what she was doing when it came to trading candy. She did not organize her pile with the obsessive pride that I took great joy in. It would appear to an unskilled trader that she had no idea what she was doing, but she had a great poker face when it came to value, and she played all the good candies close to the hip. Negotiating a deal for something like a package of Twizzlers or a box of nerds could take hours or days. She would torture me with it, leaving it in plain view until the temptation got to me and I would be willing to trade anything for it. She may have been younger, but she knew what she was doing. She was cunning, shrewd, and manipulative. We fought when we were kids, but we always managed to make up before we fell asleep. A dispute over a Butterfinger was hashed out in its own way while we were in the bathroom together, brushing the sugar sweaters off of our teeth. Doucheburger, she said with a mouthful of toothpaste. Scrote, I said, spitting into the sink. Even though I had my own room, I slept on the top bunk of Carly's bed for a long time. Our mother pried a few smarties out of Carly's clenched fist, kissed us goodnight, and turned out the lights. Hey, Carl? Yeah, Cass? Used to was here already, I said, and we burst out laughing. There was a long pause. The wind outside whipped branches against the window panes. My stepfather snored in the next room. I heard the sound of Carly reaching around in the box spring and unwrapping a jawbreaker. Hey, Cass. Yeah, Carl. Love you. Love you, too. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock.
The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.